This episode of Lucky Paper Radio is brought to you by our partner, FFS, the number one marketplace for cryptocurrency, blockchain, NFTs, and other digital assets. Maybe you live in one of the many areas of the world experiencing catastrophic weather events caused by climate change. If you're tired of all your earthly belongings burning up in wildfires or getting ruined in the floodwaters from mega hurricanes, it's time to start spending your money on more sensible things. Digital tokens with absolutely no practical use or intrinsic value. You can rest easy knowing your animated gif of sexy Sonic the Hedgehog twerking that you own is safe on the cloud. We know some of you might be worried about the ethical implications of effectively gambling with fossil fuel guzzling imaginary commodities, but don't worry. Our friends at FFS have assured us that a portion of their marketing budget goes to philanthropic causes to support their public image. That's just good business. I want you to know that we talked to some of the higher-ups at FFS, and these guys practice what they preach. All of them own a lot of crypto, and that means the more you all buy, the richer they get. Someone tried to tell me that was a conflict of interest, but it sounds like an alignment of interest to me. So remember, that's FFS for all your cryptocurrency, NFT, and other blockchain needs. As long as more people keep buying in forever, we'll be fine. Disclaimer. Lucky Paper Radio and its hosts are not investment professionals and nothing we say should be considered as investment advice. You should consult a financial professional before considering buying shares of Ponzi schemes or other fictitious products. Get more responsibly. Hey, do we know what FFS stands for? No, I don't think they told us. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, Nickel Bolas Dragon God Caster Maddox. I did cast a lot of Nickel Boli. We played a fun cube this week. Yeah, this was uh, one person in our playgroup put together a cube of their own. Sounds like basically from cards that he happened to have on hand, which is, I think, the the best way to make a cube. Just take the cards you already have, start there, and then uh, work your way up. And you drafted a pretty sick Grixis deck with uh, the very hard to cast Nickel Bulbous Dragon God. That mana cost is what? It's you, black, 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 red, right? That sounds right to me, yeah. Yeah, this was a, this was cool. I, I feel like a lot of cubes sort of start in that way where I, I also just, I do appreciate his self-deprecating sort of sense of humor about the cube where he's like, this is my binder cube. It's a pile of trash. That's what mine was when I first started my cube. Yeah, that's how cubes are. And like, it's a fun experience, even if it like, I, I think people overemphasize this idea of like a cube has to be perfectly balanced or like fine-tuned. It's like any collection of cards is going to be an interesting puzzle for your players to try and solve, right? Yeah, drafting and, is fun, uh, magic is fun, so it's kind of hard to go wrong, I think, with any pile of magic cards you can draft and play. Yeah, and I sort of looked at the list and was like, you know what, I'm going to take fixing, uh, really powerful, expensive spells, and signets, and things like that, some efficient interaction removal, and I did okay. And, you know, when I got to do the thing and have Nicol Bolas in play with multiple other planeswalkers all doing their thing, it was kind of a good time. I did something kind of similar. I also drafted a, well, I drafted like a five-color good stuffy deck with tons of gold cards, tons of fixing. And, you know, that deck, I feel like, gets a little bit of a bad rap in the cube design world. It's like, oh, it's so brain dead to just take the best cards and take fixing, and it's driving sideways across all the archetypes. But I think those decks are also a fun challenge to build and pilot. I do not think they are just phone it in easy peasy style. Yeah, I, I might be part of that negativity overall, but because I think that can come up like as a side effect of, of building a cube. But it is definitely fun to do at least sometimes. I like it to be a sometimes thing. And, and my deck, I had the five-color Niv-Mizzet and hit quite a few times well, what off more, of casting what more do you Niv-Mizzet. Need? And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a really good cube. I, I appreciated playing it. So uh, shout-outs to Sal and our playgroup for putting that cube together. And yeah, you got to cast Nickel Bulbous Dragon God. What else could you possibly ask for? Uh, casting Nickel Bulbous Dragon God and then another Planeswalker the next three turns after that. How was Nickel Bulbous Dragon God? Was it strong in your deck? Was it worth five mana? I think so, yeah. So I feel like we a lot of times also to sort of counter uh, conventional wisdom talk about like the vindicate test and and you don't want your cards to be losing on the side of removal so everything has to be hyper efficient. I think the other side is also worth mentioning that if, if you have a lot of big things and you're able to play a threat after threat, if your opponent runs out of answers, you can win that way as well. And it felt like an opportunity to sort of test that theory. This week on the show, we are talking about 
Innistrad Midnight Hunt. We're doing our mechanics and a kind of set overview episode. So not talking any individual specific cards yet because that conversation will be withheld until we get the results back from our survey. I'm not sure when we're putting the survey live for this set. So keep eyes peeled to our social media. Subscribe to our newsletter if you have not already to find out when that survey goes live. I think we're going to wait for the commander cards to be spoiled as well so that people only have to fill out one survey instead of coming back twice. But uh, but keep your eyes peeled for that, and we will have our set review coming to you in a couple of weeks, probably. Not not next week, but probably the week after or, or you know, the latest week after that, depending on when we get the survey out and all of the answers analyzed properly. But this time, Anthony, we're just putting our, our game designer hats on and really just talking about the mechanics in this set. We get to separate ourselves from power level and balance and just talk about how these mechanics interact with magic as a whole, which I think is is one of the most fun parts of doing any set review to me. Yeah, I mean, that's all I want to do. Who wants to just list off cards? List off powerful (laughs) cards dot podcast. We are going to skip the listener submitted pack one pick one because this is such a focused episode. But we are, of course, still doing that. So if you want to have a pack from your cube read out on Lucky Paper Radio and have Anthony and I horribly butcher a pack one pick one from it, you can send a link to your cube with your name and pronouns to mail at luckypaper.co and we'll do it on the show. Should we just dive in, Anthony, right at the top of the Wizards mechanics article for Midnight Hunt? You're going to have to tell me what they have at the top of the list. I will do it. So the the first mechanic is the new day-night mechanic, or day-bound, night-bound is another way to put it. And this mechanic is somewhat complicated, but in in spirit, it's very simple, basically. It's a new way to manage the front and back side of the werewolf-style transform cards And you may remember this mechanic from the original Innistrad where each of the individual werewolves had abilities that basically said if, you know, a player casts no spells, it flips to its backside. And then if a player casts two spells during a turn, it flips to its frontside and it would each flip back and forth kind of on their own. And this new mechanic is basically a way to keep those in sync all the time. So instead of each card individually flipping back and forth between its front and back, the entire game has a day or night state as soon as a card with Daybound is played, or a card that references the day or night state. And then it flips back and forth under similar rules as the original Innistrad Transform cards. So it now says that if a player casts no spells during their turn and it's daytime, it flips to nighttime at the beginning of the next turn. And on the flip side, if it is currently nighttime and a player casts two spells during their turn, it will flip to daytime at the beginning of the next turn. This actually, I remember, Anthony, listening to an episode of Drive to Work ages ago where Mark Rosewater was talking about the design of original Innistrad, and I know that they tested this for the original implementation of the Werewolf cards and initially decided to go a different route with the original Innistrad. Oh, really? And here we are back with returning to Innistrad, and we are actually having a token that keeps track of this game state. What do you think of this implementation of the Transform cards with day and night sides? Uh, I actually don't remember that episode, so I'm surprised to hear you say that, because to me, this honestly seems like a much, much cleaner implementation. Like, the, the idea of these werewolves, uh, and that was a big part of the original original Innistrad and a big part of why double face cards exist at all, is they wanted to get this transforming idea of werewolves uh, to, to be represented somehow mechanically. And Yeah, Innistrad, me, the this... first set that gave us double-sided cards, double-faced cards, rather, because of, like you said, the flavor of an actual transformation of a werewolf. Right, exactly. And to me, this just feels so much cleaner to say, like, there is one state. You don't have to worry about tracking what every card is doing at any given time. And it also just makes that flavor resonate so much more where it's not like, oh, yeah, he's kind of in night mode. He's in day mode. It's like, hey, it's nighttime. Shit's going to happen. Yeah, I I agree completely that I think it is a much better, more flavorful implementation of the mechanic because it's weird to think that, like, the whole deal with werewolves is that, you know, if it's nighttime under a full moon, they transform. And the idea that you could have a werewolf on the battlefield that's transformed and then you just play your hunting master of the fells and it's just a guy, it, it kind of, the illusion of the day-night sort of relationship kind of falls apart a little bit. But that said, even though this mechanic, I think it's a flavor win, it does have, I think, substantially more complexity and a more clunky implementation, I think, for for paper play than the original one did, because you do have to keep track of this separate token. There are also cards in the set that do not have daybound or nightbound, so they don't have two different sides, but they do reference the day or night cycle and switch from one to the other or care about switching. And it the game starts in no state, so there, it's not day or night when the game begins, which is maybe a little bit counterintuitive. It doesn't become day until you cast a daybound card. So there's a lot of, I think, 
little clunky features that I think will make this a little bit more complicated to play in paper, which is why I can see why in the original Innistrad, they went for perhaps the cleaner mechanical implementation at the sacrifice of a little bit of that flavor i actually don't really agree like obviously it's gonna we're, we're gonna play the set I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing the set and see how it feels but i wouldn't be surprised to just come away from the set feeling like this is actually just a much tidier implementation from a gameplay like there are some of those weird edge cases you're talking about like we don't track the state until uh something actually makes us care about it but on the flip side that's actually kind of just intuitive it's like i don't care if it's day or night until i have a werewolf and then once we do we start tracking it that kind of, I think, is just going to play very naturally. And having having that token in play, I think, is just going to be like a, a much easier visual reminder. Like, oh, yeah, I cast two spells. Make sure to flip this. Uh, they also did change it a little bit that it only cares about the active player casting spells, right. which I think that um, I was listening to the uh, last episode of Good Luck High Five, where they made a great point that there's this sort of like weird feel bad about your opponent having an instant and you sort of investing your turn in not casting spells to transform your werewolves. And then your opponent has an opt and it's like, well, how how much do you really want to reward that kind of like or, or you know, punish a player for making that kind of investment? So I, I think a lot of aspects of this new implementation are just going to play a lot better. I, I kind of want to hearken it back to something like Mutate, which which if you actually try and look at the rules and read how Mutate works and think about all those edge cases, like the mechanic kind of sucks. It's really hard to parse all that out. But on its face, like the flavor carries it so well where it's just like, yep. These two creatures combined, they've got all shared abilities. Let's have a good time with it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not just a big flavor head, but for me, Mutate is a pretty clunky mechanic. I don't love Mutate, and I also don't love his implementation of, of day-night here for those same reasons. Another example is like, you're going to have to keep tracking the day and night cycle. If you play a card with Daybound and then it dies and there's nothing else in play that cares about it, you still have to track it because once right. that becomes the state of the game, it becomes relevant. I think we see this implementation now because honestly, I think that Wizards is focusing a lot on arena and digital play for when they're thinking about these mechanics a lot more than they were certainly when original Industrad came out. And I think on arena, this is going to not only play great, but also like I'm imagining they can change the entire interface in day and night in some subtle ways to make it very like evocative and immersive. I think this mechanic is going to play really, really well on something like arena. I just think it's going to be a little bit clunky in paper personally. Also, yeah, that, that detail that you touched on, I think is, I, I don't know if you're ready to dive into how this translates to cube yet, but that I think is actually a huge negative where I think that when you have this volume of werewolves that it feels like this day-night uh, sort of phase is really critical to the the way that most games play, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's going to play really well. If you put one or two of these cards in an environment that all of a sudden, like, I have to keep caring about this and keep tracking the state just in case I draw my, you know, regrowth and, and reanimate this creature or get it back from the graveyard somehow, that could be, like, the, the really worst-case scenario for this mechanic. Yeah, I agree. I, I think ultimately this is probably going to be a better implementation of the spirit of this mechanic within this set, within Innistrad Midnight Hunt. I think it's going to play better. And I think in Magic more broadly, in you know constructed formats that aren't standard, in cubes, in EDH, stuff like that, I think this is going to be a, a kind of a big miss for that reason alone. Uh, just this implementation is so much less clean when you take it and stick it out of context into another type of magic. And that's one of the reasons I love magic is that it is this extensible, flexible system that plays so well with other game pieces. And to me, this just kind of isolates these cards a little bit. It makes them play really, really well with each other and have this really strong flavor. But then outside of that, it's like a very clunky way to have a... Huntmaster of the Fells. I, yeah, I was trying to think of one other than Huntmaster of the Fells. Oh, did you anyway, <laughs> That's something we already did. Anyway, I, I think it's going to be a lot clunkier than just you know putting a Huntmaster of the Fells in your EDH deck or in your cube or whatever, which can totally play on its own independently without having any of this weird cruft. That's such a funny aspect of this game, which I honestly don't know if it's more negative or more positive, but the fact that we've seen a lot of similar mechanics or like this, the same problem solved in lots of different ways, and there's definitely some negative to it. You know, I'm imagining here's my werewolf EDH deck, and it's like, well, yeah. uh, I didn't cast any spells this turn, but then you did, so I'm only going to flip half my werewolves and it's nighttime, yep. but this guy hasn't transformed. Like Having all these slightly different implementations, I think, does add a very real complexity. And that that's something that I do try and think about when considering cards for my cube is the fact that there is a drawback to having very similar but slightly different mechanics. Yeah, it's just the way magic works, right? They've been making these cards for 25, 26, 27 years. And there's a lot of different contexts, a lot of different players that play in a lot of different ways. And yeah, I, I do think it's a bit of a bummer that 
if you do have a werewolf EDH deck. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of people that were actually like mad that the old werewolves were not mechanically altered and errated to work with the new day night rules because they wanted that consistency. But yeah, that's the that's the challenge of making a game like this. That you know, what was the original Innistrad printed like? 12 years ago something like that it was a long time ago magic is a very different game now than it was back then different goals different audiences so you end up with very slightly different implementations of a very similar flavorful mechanic and we should say the reality of it is if you're playing casual formats as most of us are if you're building an edh deck or you're building a cube you can also just make that errata for yourself and just say like I can't imagine ever sitting down at a commander table and saying, hey, I'm playing all of my werewolves this way. Is that okay with you? And someone saying, no, you have to play to the letter of the cards. Well, that's a pretty good way to know not to play commander with that person, I think. That's just a great a, point. Yeah, it's a good little shibboleth, a good little litmus test. Just uh, if they tell you they don't want you to do that, then uh, go play with a different pod, probably, because that person's not gonna be any fun anyway. Yeah, or I like uh, Justin Parnell's strategy of saying, I'm playing uh, this Planeswalker. I think it was that Nicol Bolas as my commander. And he said he's like, he played it dozens of times in all kinds of different shops. And never once has anybody said, please use your backup commander. That's actually a creature. Rule zero. The next mechanic, according to Wizards of the Coast, official hierarchy of mechanics in this set is Disturb. And Disturb is an ability that allows for creature cards to be cast from the graveyard for their Disturb cost. So it's kind of like Eternalize or Embalm from the Amonkhet block. Except in this case, instead of just putting the creature back in play or putting it in play as a 4-4, you put it in play transformed onto its backside. So it can have totally different traits on the backside. It can be a different color. It can have totally different keywords, different power toughness, different everything, basically. All of the Disturbed creatures also say if they would go to their graveyard from their backside, they are instead exiled. So this really kind of plays like a like an aftermath almost for, for creature cards. In some ways, I think that Embalm was like flashback for creature cards, essentially. Uh, it allowed you to cast your creature card again from your graveyard by making this token that was a copy of it. And this is like Aftermath, which, you know, was like flashback for spells, but instead of doing the spell again, it gave you a totally new effect from the graveyard. This is like that. So you get one creature on the front side, the creature dies, you can then cast the backside creature from the graveyard, and that creature can be totally different. This seems yeah. like a very clean mechanic to me and kind of a an obvious place to go once you have the double face card technology totally built and established and we have all these sort of permutations of various flashbacks and, and graveyard casting costs i think this was kind of a an obvious place to eventually go for a set like this yeah i mean i think that as soon as flashback was designed the next question was just how do we do flashback for creatures and we've seen all kinds of different implementations like you you described uh for making that happen you know it's it comes back but you get a corpse counter and then exile it if it leaves or we have embalm where it turns into a token and we have all these different mechanical ways, especially to solve that issue of you don't want to just be able to have the repetitive play pattern of just doing it again and again. And I really do. I agree. I really like this implementation where you don't need this extra token. You don't need extra game pieces. And it has a sort of natural evolution to each of these cards. I'll also say just like from a high level stepping back, like I don't love double face cards for the most part. Yeah, I think that in my cube, I don't want that extra logistics of having to flip cards. I really felt like this is a problem when you're drafting modal double face cards in a cube where you're not, you know, really familiar with what the list of cards is necessarily. Uh, having you're something me you in can't there, give me the full text of the Omen Keel off the dome. Oh, my God. Uh, so I actually <laughs> I should say. I've criticized Cosima in the past, and uh, I did actually play with it maybe for the first time outside of like having it in some limited deck or something uh, in that cube. And the play patterns of at least the front side are pretty reasonable once you figure it out. But it, man, that card is so hard to read. But yeah, I, f I feel like especially, you know, looking at a card in a draft and literally not being able to read half of the text is is very frustrating. I think that's a big enough negative that for my own cube, I'm just not interested in it. But I love, or at least I like so much more, these transforming double face cards rather than the modal ones, where they tell a more concrete story. So you know, I'm going to get this most of the time, and I'm going to assume the back is like, it's some reward. If I can flip this card, I get a benefit. It just kind of makes the whole card so much easier to evaluate, while still having a lot of rich complexity there. Uh, and I, th I believe all these disturbed cards follow a really clear pattern where they become a spirit, they gain flying, and the power and toughness is also listed on the front side. So it's right. much easier to evaluate how these cards actually work just looking at the front face. Yeah, with the disturb cost and the power and toughness on the front side, I feel like that gives you most of what you need to make a complete evaluation of the card. Because, you know, outside of discarding one of these cards for value or something, you're going to have to play the front side first 
And so once it's in play, then you could, of course, read the backside. If you want, your opponent can read the backside. But you're not, you know, playing the backside directly from your hand, in which case you're sitting there with a double-faced card in your hand, and you're like, oh, I gotta, like, look at the back of this card, and my opponent's gonna know I have it in my hand then, and, you know, it gets kind of kind of weird. So I agree, as far as double-faced cards go, I have, I, I have a lot more acceptance for them than you do, I think, in my own cube, but uh, I agree this is definitely a much cleaner implementation of a double-faced card than just the straight-up model double-faced cards that uh, don't have lands on the back. Right, yeah, so as far as double-faced cards, these are some of the most appealing ones to me. I agree. And and obviously everything that is great about flashback applies to these as well. Like you mentioned, being able to discard the card and then be able to cast it later for its disturb. Like th those are really interesting lines of play to me. Yeah, there's a non-trivial amount of discarding stuff in this set for a set that has no madness, no other like discard synergies. It just has enough things that do stuff in the graveyard that uh, there's a lot of discarding for value that just shows up kind of incidentally across the set. Which I think that as cube designers, that's really where a lot of the interesting meat from the set is going to come from. Yeah. Is this the right time to mention that Flashback in its canonical form has also returned? We have cards with actual Flashback in this set? Uh, we can talk about Flashback, or we could dig into the fact that there are even more double face cards, which I don't know if are mentioned in the article. Let's just get Flashback out of the way real quick. Flashback's okay. back. It's great. I'm always excited for more Flashback cards. One of my favorite mechanics. I'm not alone in that. So many Magic players love Flashback, and it's not a coincidence as to why. So I'm excited to see those Flashback cards making a return. You want to talk about more transform cards, Anthony, more double face cards. So yeah, I think it's interesting that we have a lot of complexity in this set put into the double face cards, uh, including these two named mechanics of uh, Disturb and Daybound and Nightbound. But we also just have a whole pile of double face cards that just have the normal transform ability. Uh, and they transform for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they trigger on Daybound and Nightbound and like it's a curse or whatever. Or you just flip it with a, a, a trigger or with an activated ability, which... I, th I think if you are interested in double face cards, especially, you know, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more theme based, maybe you're building a specifically an Innistrad or a werewolf themed cube. Those, I think, again, I, I like a lot more than the double face cards just because they they tell a more clear story. They're a little bit easier to evaluate. Uh, and I think there's a lot of interesting designs there. I feel like maybe there are just too many different applications of double face cards in this set. Like you said, we have the day night cards. We have the Disturb cards, which are double face cards that don't flip on day-night. They flip when you cast them from their graveyard. And then we also just have cards that just have normal transform abilities or conditions, like your Ambitious Farmhands or your Bereaved Survivors, which just flip under different conditions. Not when day-night switches, not when they're cast from the graveyard, but for different reasons. And maybe the sort of gamble here is that if there's enough different double face cards, then people will assume that they don't mean just one kind of thing. But it feels to me like maybe this is really pushing what you can use both fi both faces of a card for in a set without it being becoming confusing because it would certainly be easier if all the double face cards were day bound night bound cards you knew you just flipped everything that had two faces when uh, when day night switched but you're gonna have to actually keep track of all the cards and all the different conditions under which they transform i mean that is true at the same time is that actually more complex than just saying hey this set has artifacts matter and creatures matter and enchantments matter like we're we're saying these are double faced to, it's kind of just a way to say these cards have more text. They're just like double-sized cards, which is inherently some more complexity. But I, I think that really like modal double face cards for me are really where so much of the confusion comes in because you actually just play it in a different way. Whereas if you had, uh, you know, a, a transform double face card and a mobile, modal double face card in your hand, you would have to know stuff about like, yeah, because there's no mana cost on the other side of this one, you can't cast it. But that one has two separate mana costs, so you can. And there's it's not necessarily obvious just looking at the front of the card, which kind of is. I think when they all transform, they all include some text that describes how they transform. I don't expect that to be much of an issue. And the flip side of it is also just that we're, well, I would say we're not going to see double face cards in every set for, you know, logistical and design reasons, although we've know. been seeing them a lot. But as far as these transforming cards, I think it's reasonable for them to, and for us as cube designers or, you know, casual magic players, having them just explore really deep into that space is, is just a benefit to us to have more different cards to be able to play with. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is different than just having an Artifact Matters theme in a set and a Spells Matters theme in a set. To me, it's more similar to, like, having cards that care about casting non-creature cards in a set alongside cards that care about casting instants and sorceries. It's, like, two slightly different but similar things that I think is going to be similar enough that it's going to cause confusion. I know there are people that are going to play their, you know, ambitious farmhand and then think when it turns to night, it's going to flip over. Because, I mean... That card still uses the sun and the moon to indicate that the two sides true. of That's the face. That's a little bit of a funny detail. 
so I I know it's going to happen. You know, I think for enfranchised players, it's probably not a huge deal. But if we're just talking about the set from a game design perspective, it definitely feels like they are pushing the limits on how much they can use the double face card technology for different mechanical references within one set. Yeah, I could see that. The last mechanic, according to Wizards, and I think there's a lot of mechanics they're kind of like skipping over here, which we're going to talk about. But the last one covered in the Wizards Midnight Hunt mechanics article is Coven. And Coven is an ability word that checks whether you control at least three creatures with different powers. And then that ability word is used on spells, triggered abilities, activated abilities to give you an additional effect or only allow you to activate an ability if you have Coven. So this is like, you know, any other kind of threshold style, uh, you know, ability word like Delirium or something where once Coven is online, you get a bunch of extra stuff that you didn't have while Coven was not online. Right. Or it reminds me a lot actually of Party where it's like you want to assemble a collection of different creatures. Well, but very different in the sense that party pays you off for the number of creatures in your party. It's not a threshold where it's a binary on off. And I actually think I would have liked a mechanic like this more if it was a more gradual, like, do thing X times where X is the number of different powers among creatures you control. But instead, this is a very on off style mechanic like Delirium. It's either on or it's not. Um, What do you think of this mechanic overall, though? This one cares about just stuff that's on board. We're not touching the graveyard. We're not touching this day-night zone. This is just onboard complexity. Do you have a variety of powers and toughness, or just powers among creatures you control? I mean, just just in the mechanic itself, I think it's so funny, I guess, or so quirky. Uh, and they actually called this out as well, uh, where you read it and you're like, oh, different powers. It's like, oh yeah, I want to, like assembling my party, I want to assemble my coven of different witches and I want a healer and I want, uh, you know, somebody who's good at attack spells and someone who can do, you know, whatever other kind of magical power. But it's not that. It's not like witches that have different powers. It's literally different ability to attack, yeah. which is... D- different powers in a, in a very literal sense. Which I wonder sort of how that came to be. Like, I feel like maybe it started out kind of top down. They're like, oh, we actually do have a thing called power that we can care about in the game. So we could just track that. That being said, I, I, th- I don't think I love this mechanic because it's really something that just rewards you for being ahead and makes you care about something that's so like weirdly specific. I, I just I have trouble imagining being either in the draft or maybe even like during gameplay sitting down and thinking, OK, well, I definitely don't want to block with my tutu because that breaks my coven maybe i will be thinking about that i'm just i'm concerned that the like actual decision space as you are drafting and playing the game is not actually going to be that rich and it's going to just be like yeah when you're ahead you get a bonus i'm kind of in the same boat as you i i can't imagine let's start with the draft i can't imagine taking a like worse three power card over a better two power card because i'm like well i have lots of two power cards in my deck and i want to be able to turn on coven and you know we have right and that's, these a, cards that's a really good way to to phrase that like when you're thinking about a synergistic mechanic working it's because you're making choices for the decision for that synergy which means you are choosing a card that is less optimal in a vacuum yeah and you know we haven't touched these cards yet maybe we're totally wrong maybe coven is a powerful enough payoff that you do want to take your up strange powers on creatures and just do it i mean one of the things i did notice here is that there are a decent number of zero powered creatures in the coven colors that are otherwise playable you know like you know an 04 with disturb so you just kind of have it in play to give you that odd power for your coven and then when it dies you get to cast it and make it a reasonable threat so i think maybe that will give like a slight boost to otherwise less playable cards but in general i think i agree with you anthony it feels like a feast or famine if you already have Three creatures in play is already a pretty good spot to be in a game of Magic. Uh, them having different powers means you probably have more than three in play. You probably have four or five, and then you're just going to make all your stuff better. It feels like it might just be kind of a, a, a steamroll mechanic, or once it gets online, you're just going to kind of run away with the game. And in that sense, you know, a, a threshold mechanic, it's uh, threshold is, of course, the original threshold mechanic, but uh, I think Delirium is another great example of a similar thing where it cares about hitting this this threshold, at least four different card types in your graveyard, that I think has a lot more interplay to it. Maybe not in the draft, but I think you will definitely block differently if you know you're going to kill your opponent's fourth card type and put it in their graveyard. You know they're playing Delirium cards. Um, here, you know, you're going to use your removal spell on their best creature, I imagine, no matter what, and that's probably going to break up Coven most of the time anyway. So it feels like it's a more incidental payoff than something that's really going to be dictating drafting game decisions in a big way. For sure. So I think that I have no doubt that we're going to look at all these Coven cards and there's going to be a couple that are, you know, really interesting payoffs or uh, just extremely powerful cards that people want to play. So I have no doubt that there's going to be a a lot of fun to be had with these cards. But overall, it's a mechanic that I'm not super excited about for casual formats. 
Yeah, it is pretty flexible in the sense that it does just easily like one card with Coven, you can slot right into any environment and it wouldn't be that confusing. You know, it just basically has an ability that has a shortcut ability word Coven, but it doesn't interact with other stuff. It just interacts with power and toughness, which is, of course, as evergreen as things get in magic. So, yeah, that's a good point. It's it's one of the most uh, what's what's the right word? Like least narrow. It's it's like the most uh, backwards compatible. uh, Yeah. Of any kind of mechanic very transferable very transportable this mechanic to to other contexts so that is a plus for it i think but yeah not my favorite either the next ability is one that wizards does not call out in their article specifically but i think is one of the most interesting conversations to have with regards to just card evaluation on a raw level and that is decayed Decayed is an ability on a new kind of zombie token, I believe it's just zombie tokens, that basically says that this token can't block, and when it attacks, you sacrifice it at the end of combat. So there are a number of cards in the set that make these 2-2 zombie tokens with Decayed, which are basically only good for attacking and only good for attacking once. And I think, Anthony, this is an interesting mechanic because it really challenges people's evaluations of what a token is worth, because just how good is a token when you can't block and you can only attack with it once? It's not great. But I I think that I personally really enjoy downside mechanics. I think that they just open up a lot of both design space for people designing magic cards, but also interesting decision space where you're making challenging choices. And uh, I think that more than thinking of Decayed as just a worse make a zombie, I think it's actually just a way to say we can make cards that make tokens much more efficiently. And a lot of decks truly that care about making tokens are not making them because they're great in combat. They're making tokens because they want to create these like sacrifice engines and loops and do other things with their creatures. And basically we exactly. see a bunch of designs where it's like there are there is a much cheaper card, a much more efficient card that can make these less powerful tokens uh, that I think are really going to uh, just power up and, and give a lot of flexibility to different kinds of decks. Yeah, I, I agree that this is a huge powering down of just making a token. Like, I, it's hard to, like, compare it to other effects or, like, try and figure out how much mana it should be worth. But, like, I think making a 2-2 with Decayed is, on balance, a lot worse than making a 1-1 without Decayed. Probably even worse than making, like, an 0-1 or something without Decayed. It's just being able to block. You know, it's not just that blocking is good. It's that having creatures in play to threaten to block is what is... That's what board presence is, right? Like, in some ways, these things don't even really create... They only create half of a board presence because they can only actually attack. And I think it's pretty clear from looking at the cards in the set that uh, the tokens are not that powerful because we see a couple of cards. The ones that jumped out at me are Falcon Abomination. This is a, a Windrake, so two and a blue for a 2-2 flyer, but it just makes a 2-2 with Decayed on ETB. So obviously, if it was making just a 2-2, that would be a huge upgrade over a Windrake. And I think how much worse this card with Decayed is is really evidenced by the fact that this Windrake can just make one. Um, the other card that jumped out at me is Startle. I know this card jumped out at a couple of other people as well. And this is one in a blue for an instant that gives creature minus two, minus two to end of turn. And you draw a card and you make a 2-2 creature zombie token with Decayed. So for two mana, you are cantripping, you're making a little combat trick and getting a 2-2 out of the deal. But of course, again, that Decayed downside keyword uh, makes that 2-2 worth a lot less. So I, I agree, this is a really cool way to have cards that make tokens that would otherwise be way too powerful that they can now actually print because these tokens only do half of the stuff or a third of the stuff that you ever wanted a token to do in the first place. Yeah, and we should say, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these cards still do make a lot of sense in aggressive decks where you just want to be throwing your hordes of zombies at your opponents and you, you don't really care about generating value for the late game. Yeah, that is where my feelings about this mechanic turn a little sour, perhaps. I feel like this is going to be extraordinarily swingy because in some decks, you don't care about blocking in a certain matchup. You are only going to be attacking. And so in those decks, you have gotten an incredibly cheap rate for a 2-2 body because you were going to be attacking with it anyway. And so uh, the fact that you got it for so cheap, it doesn't actually lose almost anything in its onboard value. Well, and you still decks, only get to attack once with it. So it's kind of just that like is true. adding an extra two damage to an effect. That is Best true. Case. That's, that's a very good point. Uh, and then... In other situations, like if you're on the defensive, that token might do literally nothing for you, right? Like it, it could just be completely useless because you're just, you need it to block. You are not on the offensive. Your opponent's life total does not yet matter because you haven't turned the corner. You haven't figured out how to stabilize yet. And so in those circumstances, the additional cost 
on these cards, however minimal it is to making that decayed token, is essentially completely wasted because you are not going to get any value out of it at all. So I feel like this mechanic is going to be very swingy in the sense that if you're aggressive, I think these bodies are going to be, uh, these tokens are going to be very efficiently costed and they're gonna be very powerful if you're on the if you're on the attack and if you're on the defense then these cards are probably unplayable because their effects are going to be not that good for their mana cost because they come with this whole chunk of an effect that you can't even make any use of basically yeah i do kind of love sort of the the way the whole mechanic works together where you can't block with it and even though you lose it when you attack you weren't gonna block with it anyway it's like it's it's really a one-time use zombie which just contributes i I think and what i'm imagining uh, how this is gonna play out just this feeling of you're raising this horde of zombies and whatever you do you can just throw it at your opponent and not really like give much of a care about these stupid zombies I like that it's going to, yeah, I like the way that it makes the zombies very transactional and like, you know, they're just the pawns, right? Where you're like, yeah, whatever. All I do is throw my hordes of undead at my opponent and and not think about it because they're completely disposable. They have no value to me. I think that's a cool flavor, the way the mechanics going to play that way. This yeah, reminds definitely. me of, of ball lightning, Anthony, a little bit. I mean, ball lightning is a little bit different in that it has trample. So it allows your opponent this kind of modal decision of... How many creatures do I want to lose versus how much damage do I want to take? And here, you know, it's just these two twos without any evasion. But, you know, a ball lightning is a heck of a lot worse than that card would be if it didn't kill itself and it could block. Oh, definitely. I mean, it is just like you have some extra opportunity for two damage here or there that your opponent maybe has to play around. It's, It's kind of a weird mechanic overall. There is a smattering of sacrifice your creatures for some value stuff going on throughout the set it's not an explicit mechanic but i think there's more than the average set of ways to sacrifice your creatures to get some value so i'm curious to see how many of these cards with decayed zombie tokens can be playable in decks that are not super proactive but have other ways to use those tokens to their benefit so that even if you're on the defensive you'll still play a startle or whatever because you have something to do with that token that is not block Yeah, I think that's really where the mechanic shines, and I suspect it's going to matter to some degree in in the limited format, and if you're designing a cube or, you know, any kind of your own magic experience to lean into that, you absolutely can. Zombies are cool. I'm excited for more zombies for my uh, black cube. Are you bummed about having to have a second 2-2 zombie token? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think... So there's a couple cards uh, looking quickly at the list that I think would be pretty good fits for my main cube, but I am really hesitant about adding more unique tokens, and especially similar to like slightly different uh, mechanics that can be confused. Slightly different tokens is also kind of frustrating, so I don't know... If, uh, if any of those are going to make my main cube. Uh, but for some of my more, you know, we play this occasionally and it's we really want to push to like this zombie theme as much as we can. There, I do think the complexity is going to be worth it. The next sort of unnamed mechanic I want to talk about is one that I think is going to be a performer on our surveys. And I think is going to be one of the more successful cycles for power motivated cube designers in the past couple of years. And that is the adversary cycle which is a cycle of mythic rares, one in each color, that have a multi-kicker-esque ability. Um, It does differ a little bit, though. So these basically are small creatures. They're all two or three mana, and they have an ability that says, you know, when they enter the battlefield, you can pay some mana cost as many times as you like, and if you do, you get an effect for each time you've paid that cost, which is very similar to multi-kicker. It is different in a couple of ways, mainly that you pay when the creature ETBs instead of on cast, which I think overall is a a significant power level boost for that mechanic because those cards with multi-kicker, actual multi-kicker, you know, they're great in that they're scalable, but in the late game, you're going to have to dump all of your mana, your 7, 8, 9 mana into your big multi-kicker spell, and then you might just run into a force spike or a counter spell from your opponent and have wasted all that mana. Here, you get to know if this spell is going to resolve before you decide how much mana to dump into it. You get to hold up a counter spell to respond to your opponent's counter spell, maybe still have some mana left over to kick it if you need to. So I think overall, this is going to be a much more powerful implementation of a multi-kicker style ability. Also, it does work with flickering. I know people out there like their flicker effects. And so if you're able to play your adversary on turn two or whatever, and then later on ephemerate it, and then uh, on your upkeep when the ephemerate rebounds, you can then pay a bunch of mana into that kicker-esque ability to uh, to pump it a bunch of times. I love scalable cards, so this is an easy uh, sell for me. I'm very excited about these cards. What do you think of this mechanic in general? Uh, that's a difficult question. I feel like I, I agree with you in terms of power level that 
Scalable threats just make a lot of sense. It makes a card very powerful when you can use it in different ways at different points in the game. At the same time, I would say both with these adversaries, and almost to a degree that I just want to call it like a theme of this set, there are so many modal cards. There's so many cards that say, you know, destroy all tokens or kill one creature. I think that there is a point to me where I'm kind of turned off by having too much flexibility and too much modality in all of the cards. Because at one extreme, it's like, it's not great when I get punished as a player and I don't draw my cards in the right order. I would love for my cards to be more flexible so I can always do stuff. But if I can just always do stuff with all of my cards, that takes away a lot of the decision space about building a deck with a reasonable curve and making choices about how to sequence things. So I think that there is a limit, and and I wonder how this format's going to feel in terms of just, like, always having the right answer. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, talking about cycling, and is it really great when all of you can just always have all these conditional spells and have cycling on them? There is a drawback to that, actually. Yeah, I agree with you that it's not that modality is just good all the time because if you get to a point where you just always have options available. I mean, the, I guess the extreme is I have played a battle box once. I believe it was a battle box that had all of the charms in it. So all Oof. of the two color charms, the three color charms and battle box is already a format where you don't decide your mana base. You don't draft it. You just kind of get cards you're handed. And in that format, it was like, just a paralyzing number of decisions. It was like, well, I can do any one of these a bunch of things. I'm surely going to make a mistake with one of these modes that I choose. And it felt all of a sudden like I actually had in some ways kind of less autonomy in the sense I had so many decisions that it didn't feel like it was particularly meaningful which ones I made anymore because there were just so many options before me. And I knew that no matter what I did, I would have more options the next turn too. I would just always have a bunch of options. For me, I think the the modality thing in uh, in my own cubes I design, and I think it's probably going to be kind of true in this set too, is that I think you should always be paying a cost for modality, right? Like I think the the modal card that can be cast at five, but also three and also seven should be worse than a card you can just cast at five. And I want my players to get to make decisions between how many modal effects am I going to include? How much am I going to prioritize the efficiency of using all my mana versus just having raw, powerful cards in my deck? And I think you have to include a truly staggering number of modal cards before that decision stops to matter. Because, I mean, it is a really important decision. And I think that even with a ton of modal cards, you are still making decisions at the draft and in the gameplay portion about, like, is this the turn to commit all of my mana to my most powerful play? Or is this the turn to maybe expect a counter spell? So to play my modal thing here, because still have to use all my mana, it's a less powerful effect, but it's going to draw maybe any interaction my opponent has or something. I think those are interesting decisions that can come up. Right. I mean, when we talk about like these kinds of details, we're talking minor differences in degree. It's not like, oh, you include this card, nothing makes sense anymore. But I, as a designer, uh, I really do want to maximize those meaningful risk-reward decisions. And one specific example, uh, which I think is actually maybe most relevant to these cards, is I think the choice of playing an aggressive deck and playing, like we've talked about before, worst cards because your plan is to just dump your hand and get your opponent dead before your opponent can really make use of all those cards is a big risk but has a high reward. If we can just include a ton of cards that say, well, this is great in an aggressive deck, you can cast it on turn one or turn two, but also if you get to the late game, you still can just use this card. That actually does kind of take a lot away from that risk-reward decision. You know, it's funny to hear you say that because I, I agree with you but also I feel like one of your what what I've detected from you as a complaint about aggro decks before is that they are all in and they don't have any of this flexibility. And you tend to prefer cheap threats that are also uniquely relevant in the late game and not just dead cards. So is that different or is that the same thing? You are so right. <laughs> I, I mean it's hard. I'm gonna go, I, I I'm gonna go think about that. I, I mean I agree. There's like fine lines between it. And I've definitely been in matchups where it's like all right, I'm playing a control deck. My opponent's playing aggro. I managed to get my board wipe off. I turned the corner, blah, blah, blah. And then they just play a like 7-7 seven, seven Stone Coil Serpent. And I'm looking at the like gold removal in my hand that's, and that's my gold exactly, planeswalker. That's exactly the same situation I was picturing. Um, you know, And that that can definitely be tilting. But I overall still think that like Stone Coil Serpent is a, somewhat of a risk to put in your aggro deck because it is a much worse one drop and a much worse two drop than equivalently powerful cards that are played alongside it in in respective colors like the the red aggro two drop or the white aggro one drop is gonna be much better than playing that card on one or two and so while i love that card i think it's really really powerful in aggressive decks because it does have that mode of just now you make a giant creature even though it's the late game it is still a cost like you wouldn't 
if you could draft 12 of those, you probably wouldn't put 12 Stonecoil Serpents in your aggro deck because at that point you're truly diluting your ability to actually win the game before your opponent can stabilize. Yeah, that's true. I think so I don't this, know. Is a, this is a really interesting. I think we're just we're just about to talk about tempo again. <laughs> I can feel it coming, and we only we already been recording for forty five minutes, so we can't go down the tempo road. We don't have a we don't have the time today. But yeah, I mean, like I still really love aggressive creatures like Fairy Guidemother and Earthshaker Kenro, which on their front side are not as good as other one and two mana creatures in terms of their base rate, their damage output, but they have that late game relevance where. You know, if it's late in the game and I draw my Earthshaker Kenra, you probably can't afford to block it because then you just draw me a six mana four four that makes one of your creatures unable to block and has haste, which is really super good. So that card just becomes kind of unblockable or the Fairy Godmother becomes like an activation of an Elspeth Planeswalker that comes with a one drop as well. So I, I like those cards. And I think if you include a certain density of them, you give your players the choice to make their decks flexible at the cost of that explosive start. I, I agree with you, though. At a certain point, it does become... A little less meaningful to have a deck with a dedicated plan if all of your modal cards allow you to abandon that plan when it doesn't suit you anymore. Right. So I think in summary, these cards are cool. You should probably try some in your cube. <laughs> yeah, I like the adversary cycle. I think uh, I just like multi-kicker style abilities, especially in green, just because sometimes in like my cube, your green decks end up with more mana than you have anything to do with than I would ever put cards in my cube to be- allow you to cast. And so, you know, I've cast my Wolfbar Elementals making like 13 tutus before and just the idea of casting this adversary for a huge amount of mana is uh, very exciting to me. I like that quite a bit. The The other tiny downside is I, I they are a little bit hard to read. There's a lot of text and I kind of wish they just had multi-kicker, but I, I guess they're, they're careful there is about a adding to too that, many. For sure. Yeah. I think that's all the major mechanics. I have a couple other small notes here. We have like, is there one card with Investigate in the set? Is Investigate all of a sudden uh, like deciduous mechanic that could just show up whenever it wants there are five cards to investigate in the set so it's it's oh, pretty five. light okay. i love investigate so i'm glad to see that come back even in a small dose also just a small handful of curses in this set not a major mechanic not caught up by wizards in the mechanics article but curses are back in some regard have you ever enjoyed playing with a curse anthony you know i also saw that and and immediately thought cool curses are back and when you put it that way no not really enchantments tend to be a little bit hard to interact with and a lot of times they just feel like well i'm stuck with this for five turns can i can i race this and it feels like your opponent isn't really making decisions while you're trying to race this curse so actually i might not like them but i'm still excited to see them come back and hopefully they'll make just the right amount of a mark on limited play well, there's only four in the set, and they're all at rare. It's weird. It almost feels like a, a cycle of curses, but there's just no green one. There's one in white, one blue, one black, one red, but no green one. I don't know. I, curses are not my favorite thing, I don't think. They're extremely flavorful, though. They are very flavorful. That is definitely true. I guess the one... Is that... um, What's the Rakdos card from Ravnica Allegiance that uh, is that enchantment that punishes your opponent for three consecutive turns? Is that actually a curse, or is it just play like a curse? I believe you know that one about? just plays like a curse. I do. It's called Something Captive audience. audience. Yeah, is it Captive Audience? Captive Audience. We did it. Yeah, so that one, not actually a curse. Enters the battlefield under control of an opponent of your choice. So kind of like a curse, but not quite. That one was kind of fun. I thought that one was uh, you know, just kind of a very fun way to win the game. If you're going to have seven mana spells that win the game, at least really make your opponent squirm while, while you're doing it. Don't just, you know, play a giant creature. Make right. Them, I mean, that feels more like a, really a control decisions. finisher or like a big spell for a, a, a slow deck or a ramp deck where I feel like some of the curses, I guess the, the most problematic spot, especially for limited where some of the curses can fall is where they're not actually that good and you shouldn't be playing them if you're drafting optimally. But then your opponent sticks one on you on turn three and you're like, oh, I guess this is going to make this game hard and annoying and I might lose to this bad card is, is the worst place the curses can fall. Cruel Reality was a fun cur- a fun curse to cast in Amonkhet, at least. Not to have cast against you, but it was fun to cast. I like that part. Yeah, it's it's cruel and has less choices for your opponent than you might think at first. I also noticed there is like a, a smattering of Life Total Matters cards throughout the set and then a little bit of Spirit and Zombie Tribal going on. Not, you know, again, name mechanics, but just kind of themes that are showing up throughout the set do you have thoughts on either of those i i'm really excited about the the new tribal stuff i mean this is just such a cool axis of 
how we can care about creatures. There's, you know, this whole type line that often doesn't matter. And I think it's really nice in cubes to, to activate it, you know, just in one space to say like, hey, we got all these other things going on, but also you can occasionally draft the zombie deck. I think that's really fun. So especially to see uh, werewolves and vampires and spirits that are not quite as supported, uh, just have a lot more cards that maybe it's reasonable to throw in a couple uh, sort of payoff cards and say, well, you were drafting this, but again, now you might change your pick order a little bit and draft this like slightly worse zombie or this slightly worse vampire because it matters enough for your deck. I think that's a very cool option for a lot of cubes. Yeah, that's big regular cube vibes right there, I'd say. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, let's wrap it up there. A little bit of a short episode, but uh, I'm a little under the weather. We're recording remotely out of an abundance of caution, so uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna end it there, Anthony, and uh, get the show out to people. Yeah, I hope you feel better. Me too. But I don't. Hopefully, like this is something Ill. we can take a, one positive from the horrible nightmare of of this previous time. Is hey, if you're sick, and hopefully you can. I know it's not an option for a lot of people, but just yeah, stay home, work remotely if you can. It is funny how different being a little bit ill feels now in the in the shadow of this pandemic it's like oh i can't go anywhere i can't talk to anybody i can't can't do anything which is probably how we should have been handling sickness forever right Right? like just think of how much less you know i I think of all the countries in asia where like wearing a mask was commonplace if you had like any symptoms of a basic cold or something and it's like yeah of course who's gonna go into a public space with with cold symptoms and just that's just that's just viral load everywhere it's like unthinkable spew viral load wow unthinkable that's it for lucky paper radio though thank you for tuning in all of our music is produced by dj james nasty all the magic cards are produced by wizards of the coast and this week the show is produced by anthony and i sitting half a mile apart talking to microphones in the comfort of our own homes thanks for talking about magic with me anthony Thanks for talking about magic with me. I'm really looking forward to this set. I think it's going to be a fun set for Limited. It looks like it has a lot of things I like. You mentioned the density of modal mechanics. I love those. Just subjectively love flashback. Uh, I think it's going to be a really cool set for actual Limited, I hope. I can't wait to crack some packs and shuffle some cards. We'll see if these uh, if these decayed zombie tokens and these coven spells just lead to uh, very snowballing games where once you're ahead, you just get way ahead. I don't know. We'll have to find out. I suspect they did some playtesting. Big if true. (laughs) 